Philippians chapter 1. We'll get to our text in just a moment. But Philippians chapter 1, and if we could have sat down and planned uh, what special we would be doing this morning, uh, you could not pick have picked a better one than the one that happened. I love to see how the Lord just works those things out and to know that it's not um, just our, our thoughts, but it is His and it is the Spirit that is leading. And uh, we're going to start reading in verse 26 of Philippians chapter 1, verse 26. Paul is writing the Philippian church. He is explaining to them that uh, there are many, many things going on. He is not even sure of his own future, his own existence. But he is trusting because that will further the faith of the Philippian church, of the Philippian believers and others, that God would let him continue in this life. And, and that was certainly evidenced in history as this was not the last book that Paul wrote. And uh, he is kind of summing this up in verse 26, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. As we read these verses, Paul is saying, I, I want you to be filled with joy I, because I get to come and spend time with you again. How many of you remember just a few weeks ago, we covered the story here in our Sunday school uh, of how Paul went to the city of Philippi, and it was with much affliction. They were beaten, they were put in prison, and yet God opened the doors of that prison. And uh, I imagine one of the members of that church would have no reason not to believe that one of the members of that church to whom Paul was addressing this letter was the Philippian jailer himself. And that he was there and hearing these words. The phrase that I want us to center in on is the first phrase in verse 28. It says, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries and in nothing terrified by your adversaries. How many of you have ever been to an amusement park and ridden the roller coaster? Do you know why the roller coaster is there? To terrify you. How many of you have been on those spinning things that go around and around and then the floor drops out and then it turns on its side and when everything's all done, then you turn inside out? Uh, uh, I mean, people, why do we do these things to us? Uh, one of the largest genres of movies is thrillers and horror movies. Why? Because they want to shock you. They want to terrify you and, and we love it. Now, maybe we shouldn't, but people like this idea of being afraid and knowing that they can't be hurt. No one likes being afraid when they're not sure what's going to happen. I think I've told this story on, I know I've told this story on myself before we were in the building here and just uh, several months, actually, and was working and 
And uh, I was down in the basement doing some work in one of the bathrooms. It was 9 or 10 o'clock at night, and all of a sudden I heard this click. And all the lights went out. And uh, I, I, where I was working, there was no light coming in from the outside of the building. I mean, it was, it was dark. I mean, you think you can see your hand in front of your face, but if there's no light, you're actually just imagining it. It's not there. You have to, and, and I'm going, who turned out the switch? Because I heard a click. I mean, it sounded just like a breaker clicking off and... Normally, the way that happens is, number one, you overload the breaker, which I knew we weren't doing. Or number two, somebody takes their thumb or or finger there and pushes it off. Now, if somebody turned the lights off, what was the reason for that? We weren't yet living in the building, so I know it wasn't one of my children playing tricks. And so I'm standing there in the dark for what seems like Five minutes that can't be more than just a few seconds. Trying to think, what is going on? And I can just feel the fear rising. You see, I have never, ever been afraid of the dark. That has just never bothered me at all. It's what's in the dark that I'm afraid of. Amen? And I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And all of a sudden, a thought hits me. Wait a minute. Why would somebody turn off the breaker? They would be in the dark, too. It's not going to help them. I'm going to have to walk out there, feel my way around the corner, and get into the, the room where the the breaker is, and turn on the lights. I mean, otherwise, I'm just going to stay here in the dark until the sun comes up, and I don't feel like doing that. You know what I found out? This building used to be a synagogue, and because of the Sabbath rules, everything was on a timer. And that click I had heard was the automatic timer turning off the lights. Because you see, to turn on a light switch on the Sabbath day would be to kindle a fire, which would be breaking the Sabbath. And so the Jewish people come up with this idea, we have to have lights, and so we'll put it on a timer. Now the question then becomes, did the person who set the timer actually turn on the lights? And uh, the truth of the matter is, yes. And so what they did was they hired a goy, a Gentile electrician, to set the timer. So it was actually a Gentile that turned on the lights. They just get to enjoy them. If that makes sense to you. But I'll tell you what, it sure scared the living daylights out of me. Because I wasn't expecting the lights to go out. Now, this verse here says, let me, let me read it. I love the way Paul words it. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries. Now, how many of you are afraid of things today? I mean, I used to have one line that always worked. Mrs. President. I mean, five years ago, eight years ago, that worked. I mean, everybody was afraid. I'm not afraid anymore. I think it might be better. I don't know. When I was a little kid, it was always the Soviets. How many of you remember hiding under your desk because they thought the Soviets were going to send nuclear missiles Could I ask you a question? What in the world is hiding under your desk going to protect you from? Now, I could understand if it's a tornado or a hurricane or, well, no, hurricane wouldn't help much, but uh, flying glass and things like that, hiding under your desk might, might give you a little bit of protection, but 
If there's windows in the room, uh, you're not going to be protected from all of that. And yet we did all of these things in fear. In fact, there's a fellow, I, I don't know how many years ago, 80, 60, 80 years ago, wrote a whole book on the psychology of mankind based upon the element of fear. And how that every action and reaction of the human being is about fear. And there is some truth to that, but no one single emotion, no one single experience determines all of human behavior. That's what makes the problem. Now, let's put this in its context here. Paul is telling the Philippians, I want you, in verse 26, verse 26, he says, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Now, I want to be careful with this because there's been way too much made of this. But we as Christians... As believers in Jesus Christ, if you believe in this book called the Bible, you should not have a pessimistic outlook on life. You should be on the positive side of things. Somebody said, what's the definition of a pessimist? It's someone who looks both ways before they cross a one-way street. Somebody gave me that definition a while back. In New York, that's what we call smart uh, or living. Amen? You should always look both ways before you cross a one-way street because you have no idea what's coming up the other end, whether it's a bicycle rider or the skateboarder or the rollerblader or an out-of-control pedestrian. or it, it could even, I mean, cars do go the wrong way up the, up the street. I mean... Uh, it would behoove you, but I, I believe that a pessimist is someone who is just simply discouraged about what is going on. Is someone who is always looking at the negative side of things. I don't care whether the cup is half full or half empty. That doesn't bother me. But what does is when we allow the circumstances of life to steal our joy. Amen? The joy of the Lord is our strength. And Paul is telling the Philippians, I want you, uh, I, I am hoping that when I come to visit you, our joy is going to be great. But here's what you need to do regardless of the end of this situation, whether I'm going to be set free and able to visit you again or whether I'm going to be kept here in jail. I don't know. And in verse 27, he gives us, he says, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Now, that word conversation in modern usage has been demeaned and confined to to uh, encompass what I say to another person and what they say to me. That is a conversation. The original word conversation in the year 1611 when our Bible was translated uh, was a much broader term. It encompassed your life testimony. That's what the word conversation meant. It wasn't just what you said and what someone said to you. It was what people knew about you by the way you lived. I mean, certain people, uh, uh, it's not so much here in the city, everything is confined and together, but you get out in the country and Oh, yeah, that's the house with the mean dogs. Stay away. And, and that's the house with the scary... In fact, I heard uh, Brother Davis's son Saturday saying, 
Oh, yeah, that's the witch's house up there. And I said, what in the world are you talking about? He said, well, if you saw the house, you would know what I'm talking about. And if you saw the lady that lived in it, you'd know exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, that's a conversation. It's what people think of you by what they know. What they know in a casual or not even intimate knowledge of you, it's what they know by seeing you around. Jehu was one who drove his chariot furiously. I mean, if there was a cloud of dust in the horizon, somebody knew that Jehu was around. And so these are your conversation. And Paul says, listen, I want your conversation as a Philippian church to be that that becometh the gospel of Christ. I want people, when they think about you, to think about Jesus. That'd be a great thing to have happen now, wouldn't it? That would be something that we need. And Paul says, listen, this is what I want you to do. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. Now, here's how you become the gospel of Christ. It says that you stand fast in one spirit. Now, Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. One of the mistakes that people make today is they try to uh, have this invention, and it really is. No one thought this way before uh, the medieval ages, uh, the Reformation, actually, that the church of Jesus Christ was made up of all these people all over the whole face of the earth. If that were true, then these words have absolutely no meaning at all. Because there's no way I can stand fast in one spirit, even when our brother goes to Prince Edward Island and starts a church, there's no way we can stand fast in one spirit with them because we have no connection, even if we were to hook up a live video feed back and forth between the two churches and and all of it would just be confusion. We wouldn't be able to fellowship and work. And it's talking to a local church. He's talking to the Philippian people. The members of this church in this city. And he says that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now there are occasions where we get to help. Just like we were Saturday. Those that went, I want you to know. We, we accomplished in one morning, in a couple of hours of work, what would have taken them months and months and months to do. Contacts were made. Praise the Lord for that. Rejoice. And Brother Hiram was sharing with me. He said, you know, we've been working on the building. We've been doing this stuff for so long and our theme has been launching out into the deep. He said, but we weren't launching very far. He said, Pastor, he said, you've really helped us. I don't know if you planned this or not. He said, but you just pushed us out by having the organization service in July and, and, and then coming up here and, and printing all the tracks for us and giving us something to pass out. He said... You're kind of pushing us in the right direction. I said, well, good, Brother Davis. That's exactly what we want to do. And we help other churches that way. But you know what? We can't stand fast in one mind striving together because we all had to come home yesterday. That's, that's their job. Guess what? That's our job. That's the duty and the call of every believer in Christ. Now, how do we get one mind and one spirit and striving together for the faith? Oh, it's, it's real easy. It's by studying the same thing. Amen. We study what the Bible says and we live serving God together. In fact, that describes, I've often used these words in describing. What is your church about? Our church is a place where believers can strive together, where we can struggle together to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in these last days. Amen? 
Somebody says, well, well, no church is perfect. We never made that claim. We're here. Amen? Uh, we know enough about ourselves not to make that claim. But what we're trying to do is to struggle together. And one of the things that stops that struggling together is fear. You get afraid of things. Now, before we go too far, the fear that it's talking about here is not just that emotional, paralyzing thing that grabs you. I mean, there are some times when you ought to just be a little more careful than at other times. Amen? I've often used the illustration, just bring it out again. When, when you do electrical work, if you're not just a little bit of afraid of what's in the switch box, you won't be very long. You'll be dead. Uh, it's something that you have to treat with some respect. And if you don't, you're going to either hurt yourself or burn down the building or, or worse. What it's talking about here, in, it says, in nothing terrified by your adversaries. It doesn't mean that you don't feel emotion inside. It means that you're not stopped in doing what you're supposed to do. You see, Paul said, if we go on here, he said, for you it is given not only to believe, sorry, not only, for, for unto you it is given, verse 29, in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having this same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul says, listen, there's going to be some suffering that's what I'm doing right now. That's why I'm in prison. That's why I've been in prison all this time. And everything that happened on the trip to Rome, uh, we're going to cover in our next several weeks in our Sunday school lesson. Paul was now in prison. He was going to be there for upwards of two years before his case would be heard and he would be set free. And we don't know what exactly Paul did during that freedom because that the book of the history in the book of Acts ends before it said that he kept a house for two years. That's the end of the story of the book of Acts. But one would tend to believe since Philippi is on the way back to Antioch from Rome that uh, Paul would have stopped and spent a little time in Philippi with these believers. And what a time of rejoicing that would be. You see, I've often commented here on these no fear signs you see on certain trucks and cars. When you see no fear, no, there's a lot of, there's not a lot of other things missing as well. Amen. Like common sense, uh, uh, like a lot of things. The idea of not having the emotional th part of it is just not human. It's going to be there. There's no soldier that has ever been in combat that has not experienced that emotion. But what do they say almost without exception? I stopped being afraid and just did what I was trained to do. You know what, that, that's some good advice for Christians. That's what Paul's talking about here. And so I want us to look at this in nothing terrified. Because there's a lot of things that terrify us today. It says in nothing. Now ever since I was a little child, I grew up in church and I've heard preachers preaching. And I've heard them say, uh, when I was a little kid, they would say, we're, we could lose all of our freedom and there were preachers that preached about the hammer and sickle flying over the White House and all this kind of stuff. Never happened. 
You know what? Exactly the opposite happened, did it not? I think it was a man named Ronald Reagan that said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear this wall down. I got to see a piece of that wall at the Reagan Library in, in February. My kid said, Dad, you just bawled the whole way through. And I said, yeah, it was good. But when I was a little child, I was deathly afraid of those things. Because that's what everybody said to be afraid of. They said they're going to take away our rights and our freedoms. Well, guess what? They're doing it. This is not the same America that my father had. Now, what am I going to do? Am I going to be terrified? And go find me a little bunker somewhere and dig a hole in the ground and pretend I'm a rat? No, God called me to be a sheep, amen? Sheep don't live in holes in the ground. He's called me to serve him. There's an awful lot going on that people are afraid of with government. Let me tell you something. The Bible says in nothing. Terrified. Now some of the scariest things that we know of is when the doctor sits you down in his office and says, you know what, the test results didn't turn out the way we wanted them to. There's a lot of us facing health issues. In fact, we just had a funeral service a little while ago for someone we didn't even think was I mean, all the talking, he really wasn't that sick until the last two weeks of his life. It says in nothing. And yet, we're not talking about not exercising due concern and due care for our own selves. But how many of you have been personally afraid as you're standing there in the subway platform looking over your shoulder, making sure nobody's coming up behind you as you're walking through, maybe you're required to be out late at night. All of these things fill our hearts with fear. The Bible says that we're not to be terrified by any of these things. It says, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries. You see, if we allow ourselves to choose what we're going to be afraid of, let me tell you something. We'll always make the wrong choice. How many of you have been afraid of the wrong things when the right things were much more dangerous and you didn't even blip an eye? One of the greatest biblical examples of this is the life of Jacob. You know, Jacob served his father-in-law 21 years, 20 years, I'm sorry, And then because he noticed his father-in-law's attitude was not toward him as it was before, he packs up all of his possessions and his daughters, I mean his wives and his children, and they leave secretly and they take a three-day journey before Laban even knows they're gone. It takes Laban a week to catch up with them. They've been out ten days. And all of a sudden, Laban shows up. Have you read the story? Jacob was not afraid of Laban at all. Should have been. Because God showed up to Laban the night before and said, don't you speak good or bad to Jacob. God warned Laban not to mess with Jacob. If God hadn't done that, 
What would have happened? Uh, let me tell you, Laban was the kind of guy that would have thought nothing of killing his own son-in-law and taking everybody back home where they belonged. I mean, Laban even said, these are my daughters, these are my children, these are my cattle, this is my everything, and you're taking it from me. Wait a minute. There wouldn't be any grandchildren without Jacob. And Laban's cattle was not blessed without Jacob's work and all of his labor. And Jacob wasn't a bit afraid of Laban. He should have been. It was God's hand that protected him. But when Esau came, it was a different story now, wasn't it? He's terrified. And what happened when he finally met Esau? Esau falls on his neck and slobbers all over his brother and says, I miss you, and, and greets him in the most, he kisses him in, in uh, the greeting of the, of the people and all of this. And Jacob was so terrified of Esau. And what, was, what would Esau gain by killing Jacob? He'd have to take care of the kids. He'd have to... I mean, Esau was just not that kind of guy. You know, we always waste our fear. We lavish it on the most ridiculous things when the things that could really change the, the, the course of life are totally ignored. We have fear in our hearts of a situation and we'll get into an automobile and drive at a high rate of speed to get there and we'll put our lives in much more danger by driving at that high rate of speed to get there than anything that could possibly happen at the situation we're trying to solve. Hello? It's like worry. How many of you have ever actually worried about something that made a difference for good? I see one little hand waving there. I don't know what that was about, but they tell us that 98% of the things we worry about is worthless. And the other 2% you couldn't change no matter how much you're worried about it. Fear is the same way. You see, what we're supposed to be doing is expecting the goodness of God, rejoicing that Paul would be restored to them, number one, and number two, having a conversation that becomes the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And the way we do that is striving together in one mind, standing fast in the doctrine of the scriptures, just trying to get out the faith of the gospel. You see, there are two things that will happen when we are not full of fear, when we are not terrified by anything in our lives. Number one, it says here, which to them is an evident token of perdition. You ever wonder why believers in Christ were persecuted so vehemently and so uh, doggedly just, I, I think of uh, a Baptist preacher in England in the 1600s named John Bunyan spent 12 years in prison. You know what his crime was? Preaching the gospel without a state license. And if you ever want to read something that will just thrill your soul, 
They actually have the court records and John Bunyan's words and his wife's words. He had several children and one blind daughter that would come and sit at the window of his prison and talk to him while he was in jail. You see, when you're not afraid of them, they know you're crazy. They know you're evil. What is the number one tool of the world? Is it not intimidation? Do you know what I'm going to do to you? No. And I'm not really that concerned. Why? Because I got where I'm at trying to serve the Lord. And if he wants me to keep serving him, there's absolutely nothing you're going to do that's going to stop me. You know what? I wish it worked that well in real life. Amen? But when we're in the hot seat, when we're in the thing, some of you may remember this several years ago. I'd actually, uh, I know Sarah will remember this story. Uh, I had taken my wife to uh, Oklahoma City to the college for graduation week, and we were doing things, and someone had called and accused us of all kinds of things. Some of you remember that. And my daughter called and said, they're here and they don't, they're, they're saying that we're not being taken care of as children and all this. I'll tell you what, it made us pray. It made our church pray as we never prayed before. You know what? God protected us through that whole thing and showed the liar to be simply that. Let me tell you, the emotions were there. There was fear. You can't always stop the emotional part. But you know what we kept doing as a church? Exactly what we were doing before. When 9-11 happened, what did we do as a church? We kept doing exactly what we had been doing before. We didn't need to change anything. You know why? Because we were already doing the right thing. All these other churches, they had to change their entire program. All of a sudden, people started showing up that hadn't been there before. Why didn't that happen here? You see, we were already looking for what God was going to do. Amen? And we were trying to become we were trying to have a conversation that would become faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Become the gospel of Christ. Now, I want us just to get a hold of this. We're, we're launching out. Guess, guess what? There's going to be some things that happen as this new church gets started. Oh, if, if Brother Mike looked at me and said, Pastor, I don't feel any fear, I'd say, Brother Newberger, you're probably not feeling a lot of other things right now too. Isn't that true? Feeling the emotion is not what this is talking about. It says in nothing terrified by your adversaries. That doesn't mean you don't feel things. What it means is you keep doing what you're supposed to keep doing doing in spite of feeling afraid. Amen? How many of you have ever been hindered giving the gospel to another person because you felt fear? You felt afraid? You just felt like you couldn't do it? Uh, let, let's get back to this verse. It says, in nothing terrified by your adversaries. The Bible tells us, and what Paul is explaining to us right here, 
is that if we have the right goals, if we are doing the right things now, we have absolutely nothing to be afraid of. We don't have to be afraid of the economy. We don't have to be afraid of the government. We don't have to be afraid of what's going to happen with our health or our health care. We don't have to be afraid of what other people are going to do to us. What we ought to be afraid of is not serving the Lord the way he wants us to. Let me ask you a question. How simple of an outlook on life is this? Doesn't it take me out of the realm of the sophisticated thinkers and all of the plotters and planners? And I really believe with all my heart this is what Jesus was talking about when he says, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. I want you to think this morning, what are you afraid of? What is weighing down your soul? What is stealing your joy? What is keeping you from doing the things that you ought to do? I can't tell you how many times in the last few years I've had people talk with fear about raising children in the world that they're going to be raised into and the things that are going to be going on. And I'll tell you what, that's a concern for me. I've got a large investment in the next generation. Amen? And, And I am concerned about those things. But I'll tell you what, if I raise my children to live in fear, they'll never serve God. My greatest fear is that my children won't serve God. I want them to give Jesus everything. It was an old time preacher said uh, the beginning of the uh, 1900s, just before it turned the, the century mark there in the year 1900, he said the world has never seen the results of one human life wholly given to the service of the Lord. And I believe that's true. But we have an opportunity to reverse that, do we not? Those of us that are a little older, we can't go back and get the years that we've lost. Read the prophecy of Joel. He'll give you the years back that his judgment has taken if you'll serve him his way. Now this isn't one of those exciting sermons where you can jump up and down and run up and down the aisles. But I'll tell you what, if you'll allow God's word to do its work, it'll change the way you live tomorrow. Why can't we be simply obedient God's word. You see, Paul said, if you're becoming the gospel of Christ, if you have, if we want to use today's terminology, if you have the right goals of life, what are you expending your life effort for? Often that's what you're afraid you're going to lose. Amen? And, and if your life effort is expended on money and possessions and monetary things, you, you'd better have some very serious fear because you're going to lose them. If you haven't, get ready. But if my life goal is expended on becoming the gospel of Christ... What can they take away from me that's going to hinder me to serve Christ? They took away Paul's freedom and he witnessed to Caesar's household from his prison. He said, 
that these bonds have actually fallen to the furtherance of the gospel. Does that sound like in nothing terrified by your adversaries? It sure does to me. You see, when the world finds out it can't terrify us by their bluster and their whatever else that they may have, then they think that we're absolutely insane. They think we're... um, The word here is an evident token of perdition, wholly given to a perverse lifestyle. That's the problem with the new Christianity is the world thinks it's fine. Even Howard Stern likes the music. And if he likes it, I hate it. Because he is a perverse man according to the scriptures. But what's the other thing it says here? It says, but to you of salvation and that of God. Here's the second half. It says, the world thinks you're uh, an evident token of perdition. What was Judas called? The son of perdition. That same word. It says, but to you, it's an evident token of your salvation. We've often used this term, if Jesus were holding your hand, what would you be afraid of? Would you be afraid of an army marching at you? Not if Jesus was holding my hand. What what would there be to be afraid of? Amen? And yet he lives inside of you if you're a child of God. How many of you have ever been in a situation? I remember while we were contemplating all those things and had no idea what was going to go on. We were 1,500 miles away from home. There's nothing we could do to solve the problem. Let me tell you, when you can cast all your care upon him, for he careth for you, that just proves how good your salvation is. But you know what? If you can't cast that care upon him, then you better find out what kind of salvation you have. Because it says right here that this being afraid is a token of perdition to the world. That we're not part of the world. We're as separated from the world and its idea of things as you can possibly be. But unto us, it's a testimony that we're separated from the world unto God. Not that there's not suffering in this world. Not that there isn't that emotional thing that goes on inside It's that our life goal is still serving Christ. And what we're doing is still serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, Having the same conflict which he saw in me, and now here to be in me. He said, I'm living that conflict right now. I'm in prison for the sake of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was Paul that went up on the deck after they'd been 14 days in the storm. He said, be of good cheer. That's easy to say. Like that stupid song they wrote, don't worry, be happy. That, that doesn't help. But here's what Paul said. He said, an angel of God stood by me and said, we're all going to be saved if we're cast on a certain island. We've got some direction. And when Paul came up to him and said, listen, if you let these shipmen escape out of the boat, none of us are going to be saved. What did the soldiers do? They cut the ropes and let the boat float and made sure that those shipmen stayed in the ship 
until the next day. Doesn't that sound like being in charge? And Paul was the prisoner. Yet he was given the orders. Why? Because uh, he's saved. He wasn't worried. And he wasn't terrified. Everyone else was. He said, be of good cheer. I believe God. Oh, I love that. You know what? We live in a day where, you know what? If it's not full of fear and tears, if it doesn't bleed, it doesn't lead, right? I mean, that's what the news is all about. I'm glad today that I can preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. The fact that Jesus died to pay the price for your sins, was buried and rose again. If it's good enough to get you to heaven, it ought to be good enough to get you through tomorrow. Did I hear amen on that? How about the next day? Will it work for the next day? It'll work till Jesus comes, amen? And in nothing terrified by your adversaries. You don't need to be afraid. We need to serve Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, I ask that the Holy Spirit would have freedom to minister these words. That we would never use them, not even once as a pretense to sin against this Savior of ours. But Lord, that we would never be afraid of serving you. We ask you to work in our hearts and in our lives that we would live those words in nothing terrified by our adversaries. Lord, that those who would stand against the Bible would consider us utterly perverse. And that, Lord, the assurance of our salvation would ring loud and clear in each soul. Lord, we pray for those that may be here today that do not know you as their Savior. That, Lord, they would be willing at least to investigate further what salvation truly is. Lord, we ask that you would work in the hearts of those that have been saved. That we would live as becometh the gospel of Christ. And Lord, we pray for this church. That we would have a testimony in this community and wherever people talk about the Open Door Bible Baptist Church. That those are people who get out the gospel, who are concerned about the words of the scriptures. Lord, we just ask that you would do your work, that you may be honored and glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Brother Franz, come and lead us in the hymn of invitation.